these propellers cost like five grand. Phenomenal. I would find out if you got bugs or not. And if you do got bugs, then you can tint the boat. A 9.9 .9 Yamaha four-stroke that hasn't been started for 15 years. Should I put some lubricant into the cylinders before I try turning it over? Absolutely. Please, yes, do that. Labernese says, I'm in the middle of resurrecting my double eagle and getting to my kicker motor, a 9.9 .9 Yamaha four-stroke that hasn't been started for 15 years. Should I put some lubricant into the cylinders before I try turning it over? Absolutely. Please, yes, do that. I love this topic. And yeah, you definitely, anything that hasn't been ran for 15 years, there's going to be no oil in that cylinder on your rings, on the piston, on the um, cylinder walls, on the valves. None of that stuff has any oil on it. So you definitely, and before even trying to turn it over, I would actually put the lubricant in there, take your plugs out, put the lubricant in the cylinder, and then turn it over by hand before you try turning it over with the starter if that 9.9 .9 has a starter on it. That's just definite, definite. Put some lubrication in there um, and try and turn it over by hand. Get some oil on all the on the cylinder walls and all the rings and everything like that just to get things moving again. I mean, 15 years is a long time. You're also going to want to probably take the fuel line off of the intake after it goes through all the fuel system and then prime new fuel through that entire fuel system. Like let's say it's probably a carburetor. So you probably even want to take the carburetor off and clean that before even trying to start it. Just because 15 years is a very, very long time. And you never know what a carburetor that's 15 years old that hasn't had any fuel run through it for that long is going to have in it. So just preemptively taking that off of there, cleaning it, spraying out all the jets, uh, checking the float level, checking the floats, all that kind of stuff. It would be very beneficial. And then cleaning your spark plug, stuff like that. James Schultz, question about these new propellers that cost $5,000. I'm guessing that he's talking about the Shero props. These propellers cost like five grand and a normal propeller is anywhere from $800 to 1500 bucks when you're talking about a stainless steel propeller that goes on roughly a 300 horsepower engine or above. But yeah, I mean, as far as the technology there, I mean, the propeller is phenomenal. You get fuel economy, you get range, you get um, performance, just everything about the propeller works way better. There's less drag on it. So it's basically a normal propeller with a hole in the middle of the blade that allows water to flow through, but it's at such a design that it still grips the water just as efficiently, if not more efficiently than a normal propeller would. I've never got to play with them. Obviously, you know, $5,000 a pop, they're far and few between. That's only for like your normal ones too. Yeah, you got 150 to 450 horsepower and then 350 to 600 horsepower. And then you can pre-order some different different props. Here's sta staggering performance improvements and a more enjoyable ride for 10 meters to 30 meter range vessels with inboard engines. Doesn't have a price, um, care protection. But yeah, they don't make anything. It looks like they don't make anything below 150 horsepower engine. But from what I've seen, everything about them is more efficient from the fuel economy to, you know, the, the whole shot. It's pretty incredible. I mean, I really would like to see once they get the price down. I don't know 
exactly when or if that'll ever be where you've got, you know, a reasonable price point, because say you hit ground and you got a $5,000 prop and you bend the blade. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big hit compared to a $1,500 prop, even though a $1,500 prop is a massive hit if you got to buy a new one, but that extra $3,500 is, is a major factor for pretty much everybody, even though, I mean, mo their biggest selling point that they, the, what they say is that because of the fuel economy and what you're saving, that 3,500 that you're going to pay for the prop is going to counterbalance based on your fuel economy and how much you have saved in fuel over X amount of years, depending on how much you use your boat. So as long as you're not hitting ground and you're not running in shallow waters, then it's probably a pretty good investment. If, um, you run your boat enough. I mean, if you're running in enough where you're spending say 10 grand on fuel in a year, which is a lot for most people, but those kinds of people that are spending that much in fuel and running the boat, this might be a pretty good investment because you're going to lower your fuel economy. And after you regain that amount of money that you spent to buy the propeller, then you're going to see savings on the other, other side of it. I know I say that it's basically a, a normal propeller with a hole cut in it, but it's really not. I mean, it's like a ribbon almost that goes. So you got your prop and it's like a ribbon that's on top of it. It's totally weird. And I mean, it looks sweet, but I have not got to play around with very many of them. So Casper Wittrup, I have a 704 on my boat talking about a 704 control box. It's really hard to get into reverse. Is it a control box issue, a cable issue, or an engine issue? So you're definitely going to have to do some testing here. I mean, control cables are actually pretty simple to try and diagnose. A lot of times it is the cables, but you need to separate the engine from the boat. So you just go back to your engine, take the cowling off, and then usually there's either a nut or a little clip, like a circlip or something, that's holding the cable onto the engine shift and throttle mechanisms, take that clip off, slide your control cable off, and then try and shift it and see if everything is going smoothly. If it is, then most likely the problems with the engine. So then all you got to do is try and hand shift the engine and move the throttle and see if it all moves freely by hand there at the engine. If it does, then whenever you put your cables back on, all of a sudden it's very stiff then you're probably have a problem with your cables and there's either a cut in the cable and it's rusted somewhere or um, there's a tight bend somewhere or, you know, most likely eight, 10 times out of 10 is going to be the control cables opposed to being a problem with your engine or your control box. But I mean, if, if your lower unit locks up something like that, then that'll give you a hard shifting and you won't be able to shift at all. And if you go further than that, then you can pretty much just, you know, once you've disconnected it from the engine and from the boat, then you can go to the control box, take the control box part, disconnect it from the control box, and then see if they move smoothly there too. And then also maybe kind of get back into your rigging tube and take a look at the actual control cables to see if they have, you know, any kind of cut in them, if they're rusting, if they're, you know, cut open or anything like that. And you can definitely be able to diagnose that outside of that. Most of the time it's the cables. You can just put some new cables in there and you'll be good to go.
Jared, hey man, I'm having a problem with my two-stroke 115 Yamaha, and I'm having a problem finding someone to work on it. That's a pain point for a lot of people. There's two strokes that people don't want to work on anymore. The previous tech said it's a really good motor. It is a Yamaha 115, probably that V4. The motor starts right up and has good compression. I had the upper and lower unit serviced, replaced the fuel line, spark plugs, new steering, and new throttle control, and rebuilt the carbs as well. When we go to run it, start start up and we'll go 10 miles per hour, then bogs and shuts off. The tech said he doesn't know because it works for him in the tank tests. I'm just trying to fix this thing so we can use it, having a hard time finding a tech in Central Florida. Honestly, anytime you start saying with, with a two-stroke, goes 10 miles per hour and then bogs down, most of the time that's a carburetor issue that's just what it is it's it's most of the time it's a carburetor issue maybe you got some jets that are worn out i know it says that that you rebuilt the carbs but i mean what does that really mean rebuilt did someone just take them apart and clean them did they actually get rebuilt with new jets and new seals and new floats and all that stuff or do you have a problem with the fuel supply to the carburetors that could also be kind of an issue maybe you've got a clog in your fuel tank where your pickup is if you're not getting fuel from the tank to the carburetors then you're going to bog down at 10 miles per hour whatever you say it's going to be harder for somebody that's trying to run it in a test tank because their engine's going to start up an idle and if it starts up an idle then you can't really do anything until you put a load on it and try and go wide open or you consume the fuel so there's two tests that you could probably do that's going to make it easy and you're going to definitely want to be careful when you do these tests because you're messing with fuel and you're trying to make sure that it's not a fuel issue so number one is whenever you go out and run it next what you ought to do is take the cowling off and then take the intake off so you can see straight into the carburetors and get yourself like a water bottle or a spray bottle of something or something poke some holes in the top of it and then put fuel and some oil mix together in that bottle and then you know try and get the boat on plane as soon as it starts to bog out try and squirt some of that fuel into the intake if the engine starts to take off all of a sudden when you add fuel to it then you know you got a fuel restriction problem and at that point in time i would try and run it on a shop tank get a another fuel tank with fuel and depending on if you're pre-mixing this or not then you're going to you know Put whatever you're doing into that new fuel tank and hook that straight to the engine just to make sure that you don't have a problem with the fuel tank that's in the boat because if you've got a, an anti-siphon valve or you've got a dirty pickup in the fuel tank the engine will start and run because it's got fuel but then all of a sudden when you put the throttle down and try and get on plane and try and run wide open throttle now all of a sudden you're consuming more fuel than the tank is supplying to the engine and that is most likely going to be, that's the first place I would look. It's going to be a fuel issue when it bogs down like that. Yeah, it could be a um, electrical issue with your timing being off, but you want to 100% make sure that it's not a fuel issue before you go start trying to diagnose and replace electrical components on that engine, especially a two-stroke, because most places where you're going to buy stuff like that is going to be, you know, all sales final. You can't, there's no refunds on electrical components. And so you definitely want to 100% make sure that you don't have a fuel supply issue. That's a 25 year old carburetor or older. So maybe the jets are just whooped. And so when you say rebuilt, what exactly does that mean? And you kind of want to go from there based on what you find 
with the fuel test. If you add fuel, does it get up and go? And then also making sure that you don't have a supply issue where the carburetors are clean, but it's not supplying enough fuel to the engine and you consume it all and it runs empty and then just bogs out and, and you know, you're running on fumes basically. Wonder if you had thoughts on this. It's an all craft 22. I've taken it to one place so far. Let me see what he's got going on here. Not a good day. Found this on my boat. Uh, oh. Is that foam or wood? It looks like a bunch of wood chips. Like you've either got termites or ants. I would find out if you got bugs or not. And if you do got bugs, then you can tent the boat. Uh, I've seen it done a lot in South Florida, especially on older wood boats. People will call an exterminator, come out and just like people tent their houses, they'll tent the boat and kill all the animals that are in there or whatever the insects whatever that is that's making that b hinkley i love watching your channel on youtube thank you sir as i have learned so much about the mechanicals of boating however i am looking for some advice about trying to remove my trim cylinder caps as their seals are shot on my 90 yamaha two-stroke i've tried a bunch of tools and ended up breaking all the pins off and even tried a hammer a screwdriver in a counterclockwise rotation and that didn't work either i watched an old video you guys posted about an adapter for your torque gun and i'm wondering if it is worth paying 100 bucks for the adapter or should i just try to find a mechanic around here with an actual impact hammer unfortunately that isn't the easiest as virginia boat mechanics won't touch anything over 10 years old um that's getting to be that way in a lot of places where people just don't want to work on old stuff because it breaks and there's two too much new stuff that people want fixed and it's a lot easier to work on. So, I mean, you definitely need either the adapter or an air hammer. There's no getting around it. Whenever you're talking about trim caps and stuff like that, it, yeah, they they get stuck on there. And even when you use a hammer and a chisel, even if you got a three pound sledge, you're going to have to hit it pretty hard to get it to start to turn. And at that point in time, most likely you're going to destroy the cap before you even get to the point where you get it off. So air hammer or the adapter, those are your kind of your two, only your two options that you've got. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically it. You only have those two options. So if you can find somebody that's got an air hammer, then definitely go that route. It's going to be cheaper. You're going to have to buy caps probably, but uh, the only other route is to, yeah, buy that adapter. Matthew, good evening. It is always a pleasure to watch your channel. Thank you. I have an issue with my steering leaking from the helm fill port. Would replacing the fill vent cap with a new one fix this issue? I noticed that it leaks and runs down my helm, and I can feel air in the system when I turn my engine back and forth. Thank you for your help, Matt. Um, yeah, definitely. There's a vented cap on some of those steering systems, and if you replace that vented cap because they can fail, then, yeah, that can fix your problem. I would also make sure that it's not the quad ring that's leaking because that will leak often too, which is once you take your steering wheel off underneath there, there's a little cap on top of the helm and there is a ring, an O-ring underneath that, but it's a round ring, O-ring, but it's not an O, it's in a square. So they call it a quad ring because it's got four sides on it. And that will leak pretty often and run down the helm as well. There are vented fill caps that do fail and replacing that fill cap that's vented 
could fix your problem, yes. Black Dog, can you do a short video with the results of mounting the fuel tank? I'm curious to see what that looks like. So he's talking about on the bowling netter, um, on the back where we put the fuel tank, we put the one on there where the starboard around the battery box to stick that down and we made an L bracket. What I ended up doing is just taking the one L bracket, putting it in front of the bilge pump, sticking that to the floor, and now the fuel tank just rests up against that. So that way there's a lot of versatility with the boat and you can actually take the tank and move it or put a smaller tank in there or anything like that. So basically that's all we did with the, with the fill fuel tank is put that bracket in the back. And then once you fill the fuel tank up with fuel, it doesn't go anywhere. It just sits against that back um, bracket and it's stuck in place. So there's not a whole lot on that. I mean, making a video kind of not, there's not much to see now. There's a ton of comments like Lukanuki. I haven't found anything that glues starboard. I've tried epoxies, 5200 and double side tape. I've tried scuffing the surface first too. If this works, it'll be a first. So sticking starboard. Yes, there is nothing that sticks to starboard, especially 5200. Even 5200 will not stick to starboard. It's a very interesting plastic, I guess you could call it. And, um, yeah, unfortunately there's nothing that sticks to it, but I found this plastic weld probably four or five years ago. And I actually did this on a different boat four years ago where I took, took the starboard, scuffed the back of it, and then scuffed where I was putting it onto. And I used the plastic weld to stick it on there and it is held for four years now. So, I mean, surprisingly it does work. I'm still waiting to see. We'll see, you know, after bouncing around and running it for a few years, we'll see how long it lasts. But the whole thing about the plastic weld is just like if you have a plastic welder. So there is a gun that is a plastic welder. And so like older boats, like a Triumph and um, those kinds of boats that are made out of this polyethylene or whatever it is, this plastic, that's how they put stuff together on those boats. And that's how they fix them. So if you take like a Triumph, and you get a hole in it in order to fix that they use a plastic welder and so this jb weld plastic weld is kind of the same thing only it's a liquid form i don't know what the chemical compound is that makes it up but it's the only thing that i have found that will stick to starboard how long it will stick i'm still testing that but from what i've seen over a period of over four years it seems to be pretty durable and there's a there's a couple other brands that make ropaline that's it Ropaline technology. Ropaline is an LDPE plastic, low density polyethylene boat. So that LDPE is low density polyethylene. Um, basically, it's a plastic. Now, what starboard is, is HDPE, which is high density polyethylene plastic, I guess you would say. Problem with starboard is it, it's that material, whereas the boat is made out of the LDPE and starboard is the HPDE, but a lot of what a Triumph is made out of is basically starboard. And along with um, some of these other brands that are plastic boats. So you got Triumph, Logic Marine, um, and then th there's another boat that's like an Australian boat that's basically the same thing. The only kind of, the only problems with those boats, now that we're talking about that, is in hot climates, especially down South Florida, is they warp. So if you don't have them on like the right kind of bunk, then in the heat, the whole boat will warp. It's, it's totally weird, but remember, the whole boat's made out of this LDP, low-density polyethylene 
plastic, basically. Say a 15-year-old Triumph, most of them, the hull itself is warped in some fashion because it's sitting in the sun. And I mean, especially like in the Keys, if you go out and take the temperature of like the rocks and the road and stuff like that in the middle of summer, it's like 130, 140 degrees. I mean, it might not get up to 140, but definitely 130. And that temperature in the direct sun, it it will make the boat, you know, moldable basically. And it, it melts it pretty much back to the starboard, making something stick to it. Plastic weld is the only thing that I have found. And my guess is outside of using a plastic welder, like the LDPE that the Triumph's made out of starboard being HPDE, you might be able to stick it on there. The problem with the plastic weld, it's, it's quick. It's a weld. You're, you know, as soon as you melt it and stick it out there and put it on there, a few seconds and it's, you know, it's dried. It's, it's a welder. Sean wondering the total cost of this repair demo is the boat still worth it. Talking about the bully netter and I have not made that video yet. I'm still working on it. I did not keep as good of records as I should have with all the costs and all the time that I spent on the boat. I really should have done a better job keeping track of all that. So I'm still compiling all of the expenses and how much time, I don't know if I'll be able to compile my time because I didn't do a very good job of tracking my time that I spent on the boat, but definitely how much in materials I put on there. I'm going to be making that video here very soon. Some stuff though is going to be a little bit different because I have a lot of stuff. And so some of the stuff that I put on the boat is stuff that I already um, had. Slang says, is that plastic glue better than 3M 5200 or 5400 adhesive? think 5200 is the strongest of the two um, we mainly use 5200 and 4200 it won't stick to the starboard like we've been talking about 5200 won't stick to it it will uh, come off so we pretty much use 4200 because it's not as runny and it's almost as permanent as the 52 john clr works great on rust um yeah it does so that was talking about removing rust from different stuff. Goof off rust remover is probably my favorite, but um, CLR will work as well. Ryan says, awesome info. I want those lifts of all the outboards you lifted. Where could you say the center of gravity in general is located vertically, horizontally? I can say that center of gravity located above the flywheel center. I trying to determine if I can position the center of gravity directly over the transom using my trim and tilt. Thank you. Um, yeah, it depends on the model. So some models attach to the flywheel and have the center of gravity completely straight up and down. And then other ones, the hooks are in the back of the engine. And so the engine tends to tilt forward like this. So your power head moves forward and the lower unit goes back as you lift it up based on the location of where the bracket that mounts to the transom is. And um, yeah, it doesn't really matter because what you need to do is more. Yeah. Like you said, use the trail trim and tilt and just unhook it, put power to it and hit the trim button and trim the bracket to the right angle that your transom's at. So that way it just matches up perfectly. So your bolts will slide right on in and you won't have any problems, but by and large, I would say it's a 50-50. Newer stuff, especially V models, V engines, generally anything four-stroke or newer has hooks in the back that you pull it so they lean forward. But some of the older stuff, older two-strokes where the lifting eye would mount to the flywheel, that's where it would be. But at the same time, even a, a Verado L6 
where you attach to the flywheel, it still tends to lean forward a little bit. Greg Feldman, like cars, there is death by abuse and death by sitting. Hard to say which is worse. I like that saying because that is totally true. Either you can abuse an outboard or a boat until it dies, or you can let it sit until it rusts away and freezes up into a ball of worthlessness. Um, Terry Moore, thanks so much. My release valve is stripped and it was good to see that it's okay to drill it out before replacing it. Talking about a power tail and trim manual relief valve. A lot of times, um, they get stuck and just like the trim caps, you, you got to be very precise when you get it off. And if you don't have a very big, like a half inch flathead that gets a good like contact between that position, it'll strip out. It's very common for those to strip out. And so the best way to do it is, yeah, drill it out. So you're going to drill it out, relieve the pressure. And then once you, you know, get a hole into it, if it's plastic, that's a little bit easier to get out. If it's not plastic, then, um, yeah, sticking an easy out or something in there that will, or a reverse drill bit that will take it out as you go in and you'll be able to get it out going that way. All right, I think we got time for one more. So Red Sea Underwater World Sherry says, I would like to share my quick question, how the radar network signals pass through NEMA 2000, how it possible? Um, they don't really. So most radars, you know, all radars are going to have some kind of a controller to them. And you basically have an antenna on the mount. And the antenna hooks up through a network cable. So it's really more like a, you know, an ethernet cable that goes to your computer. That network cable then goes down and it depends on what brand of radar, what type of radar, how old it is, how new it is, and you know, what your MFD or your multifunction display is. And that will determine how it plugs in outside of that. So you've got either a hub or a controller or sometimes it can hook up straight to the MFD. Um, but depending on the system, that network cable then hooks up to that controller of however it is, whatever brand you've got. And then that is able to kind of share stuff through NEMA 2000. So you really aren't doing anything radar wise with NEMA 2000. It's actually a network cable, which is completely different than your NEMA 2000. And then the power that goes to the radar is usually done through an amplifier or a converter. Depends on how big it is. I mean, you got 12 volt, 24 volt, um, 36 volt. So it all depends on what it is. And a lot of those just have a converter that hooks up to 12 volts and then it converts it to either 36, 24, or whatever, depending on how big of an antenna that you have. And then from the antenna, again, through the network cable, goes to the controller, whether that be a network hub or, you know, whatever it is, whatever system, whatever brand of radar you're having, it goes through a network cable, not through NEMA 2000. And then NEMA 2000 is just the MFDs and the system uses to talk to each other. It doesn't really use NEMA 2000 for your radar necessarily. And that's all the time that we have for this week. If you haven't yet, check out our boaters program at bornagainboating.com. We've got all kinds of new stuff coming out there. We even do weekly live streams. We were talking about last week, we've got the new structured course setup where you can do three years of boating experience in 30 days. You go through all these courses that pretty much give you three years of boating experience in those 30 days. If you do the 30 minutes a day, outside of that, we will see you 
next week.